You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Hey, grab your Bibles if you have them and go to Galatians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, set the context for where we're going this morning. We are in week five of a series that we have titled The Rumors of God. And the central burden that we're focusing on in this series is that we, is the fact that we live in a culture, I think this is especially true in the religious South, we live in a culture where we've heard rumors about this God, this God who offers abundant life, this God who loves us, this God who sets us free, this God who, uh, who gives us grace. We've heard rumors about this God, and yet if we're honest, we struggle to experience these rumors as a reality in our lives. And so what we want to do in this series is focus on why that is. And of course, our hope in this series is that you'll go from rumor to reality and that you'll begin to experience the life-transforming power of the reality of God's presence in your life and the life that he created you for in Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Galatians 5 and I want to just simply talk about one of these rumors that we've only heard about and one of these rumors that we struggle to experience as a reality in our lives. So look with me. At Galatians chapter 5, it's on uh, page 974 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. Um, And let's look at chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, here's what Paul says. We're going to read through verse 6. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. All right, there's, there's enough in that one sentence that we could talk about for all eternity, and indeed we will. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in that freedom, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. I would underline that phrase. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask our Father to help us understand that this morning. So, Father, we've sang about freedom this morning loudly. Our lips have proclaimed the freedom that you have made available for us in Jesus. I just wonder if my heart has caught up to that yet. And I wonder if I'm honest with myself, if I really believe that. Or if my anxiety and my exhaustion and my frustration and my attempts at control tell me otherwise. God, you brought us into this room not to, enter, not to be entertained, not to be filled up with some kind of self-helpism or moral do-goodism. You brought us in this room to change us, to bring us face-to-face with you, to hear the gospel proclaimed through song and through word into our hearts and to change us that we might actually begin to experience this freedom that we've only heard about. So God, would you give us uh, ears to hear, 
eyes to see and hearts to understand what it means that we're saved by grace. What it means that you've done all the work. What it means that you declared from the cross, it's finished. God help me to live and speak from that place, not just today, but at all times. Set us free by that truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Raise your hand if you have a middle child that's fearless, hilarious, and totally insane. I see a lot of hands. Jared, <laughs> raise your hand if you are that middle child. Okay, that's me. There's a, there's a reason why in TV and in cinema the middle child is always presented as absolutely insane because we are. And that certainly applies to my sweet little Susanna Jane. This is Susanna Jane. I think I have a picture of her. Does that not look, that, that look, is that, she's insane. That's a rabid, that's a rabid look. That's Susanna Jane, a.k.a. Nugget, a.k.a. Nugs, or Nugsy, or Bugs, or Bugsy, or Nugsy, Bugsy, or Little Fox. Uh, that's Susanna Jane. And I want to give you one little glimpse into the life of Susanna Jane. So a couple of weeks ago, we're getting the girls ready for bed, uh, going through the normal bedtime routine, except we're really trying to hurry this up because we have a couple coming over for dessert after the kids go to bed. So we're really trying to push this along. And in the midst of all this chaos, I'm tasked with giving that little monster a bath, uh, which was a big mistake. So, um, Here's what happens. I've got Susanna in the bathroom. I've got her bath water ran. I've got her stripped down to her diaper. And then I realize she doesn't have her bath towel. So rather than be an irresponsible parent and put her in the water and then leave the room, I make the mistake of looking at Susanna and I say, okay, sweetheart, don't move. Uh, <laughs> Papa will be right back. I'm going to go to get your towel. I'll be right back. Just stay right here. Don't move. That was strike one. I was gone maybe 30 seconds. When I got back in the bathroom, what I saw changed my life. This is what I saw. I saw that, that person uh, standing in the middle of the bathroom floor with her diaper off with this huge maniacal grin. It looked something like that. From ear to ear, and urine was everywhere. I've never seen, listen, I kid you not, there was more urine on the bathroom floor than there was bath water in the bathtub. I don't know how that much liquid came out of such a tiny creature, but there is literally, it's okay, it's everywhere. She's going to be very thankful when she gets older that I told this story. Um, so here's, what do I do? I look at Susanna Jane and I tell her, okay, honey, don't move. Uh, stay right here. I'm going to go get more towels. I'll be right back, and I'm going to clean this mess up. Uh, <clears throat> that's strike two. Because while I am digging in the hall closet for towels, I hear Susanna come streaking behind me down the hall, laughing hysterically with that look on her face, scattering urine all over my house. And so uh, I scream, Carrie, grab her! You know, like she's covered in urine. You've got to do something. And I assume, never make this assumption. I assume that my wife is on, on this. I assume that my wife has her, even though she's dealing with the other two. And so I go, I go back into the bathroom to clean up this mess. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Here's what happens next. Uh, here's strike three. Um, 
about 60 seconds, two minutes after I go down into the bathroom, I'm down in this mess trying to clean this up. This is what I hear uh, from the other room, just a desperate cry from my wife. I hear her say, um, oh my gosh, Adam, get in here now. Susanna's pooping on the table. I want you to look at her. <laughs> Listen, man. <laughs> I said, what? We got people. There, people are going to be here in 30 minutes to have dessert at that table. <laughs> My wife said, if you insist on telling that story, you better tell everybody that I thoroughly cleaned that table or nobody will ever come to dinner at our house again. So my wife did thoroughly clean that table. We almost burned it. Um, <laughs> So now, 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 stay with me. The only reason I tell you that story is to tell you what happened next. It's all, it's all building to this point. Here's what happens next. Uh, by the time I make it back to the bathroom, uh, I find, after we deal with all that mess, I get back in the bathroom, I find Susanna in the bathroom, down in this mess that she's made, and she is wiping furiously with a single Kleenex tissue trying to clean up her own mess. Oh, you think it's cute? No, let me tell you what, let me tell you what the creature does after that. Here's what she does. You think it's cute? I grab a towel. I thought it was cute at first too. I grab a towel. I get down in this mess with her. I look at her eyeball to eyeball and I say, sweetheart, why don't you stop? Stop trying to clean this up. Let Papa clean this up for you. You know what she does? She shoves me. <laughs> She's, she's angry. She, as, the, as I start trying to clean, she starts trying to stop me. And she says, no, Papa, I do it. I do it. She's going through this terrible, we're approaching the terrible twos, this stage of this, you know, this tyrant who insists on proving her self-sufficiency, right? She doesn't want help with anything. And the more I try to clean this up, the more angry she becomes and the more she wants to insist that she can do it. She wants to prove to me that she can clean up her own mess. And then this is what happens. I watch her pride turn into shame the moment she slips and falls down in it. So now Susanna's wearing it. She's got it all over her. There's no hiding this anymore. There's no pretending this anymore. She's wiping this now off of her. It's not coming off. She's wiping furiously with this urine-soaked Kleenex. Like, dude, it's not coming off. And no matter how hard she tries, she's faced with the reality that she can't clean this up herself. So in that moment, I actually began to understand something profound about myself, I think. You want to know the reason why Adam struggles to experience the freedom that we sang about this morning? You want to know why I struggle to experience the freedom that I've heard about in the scriptures? The freedom that Jesus offers from pride and sin and the freedom that Jesus offers from guilt and shame. You want to know why I struggle? to experience that freedom in my life because so much of my life is spent with me trying to prove to God that I can clean up my own mess. So much of my life 
is spent with me trying to justify myself and prove to God that I'm good enough. It's me trying to put together this this resume of righteousness, this moral record, this just prove to God that I can do it. I'm good enough. Something I can present to him that will earn his acceptance and his love in my life. I think that's why I struggle to experience this freedom that we spent all morning singing about. And I wonder if that's not true for you. Could it be possible that the reason you aren't experiencing the life-transforming freedom that Jesus offers is because fundamentally, on a very functional level in your day-to-day life, you're trying to add your works, your efforts, your performance to his grace. And so effectively, you live your life saying, I do it. Maybe give me just a little bit of your grace, Jesus, but really just let me prove to you that I'm good enough. Let me prove to you that I've got this. Here's the deal. That sounds insane. None of us, I mean, we would never say that with our mouths. We live in the religious South, right? We know all the right answers. If you ask any church person in this whole city, none of us would ever say that. We would all say, man, I understand that I am saved by grace alone and that I bring nothing to the equation. It's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. It's not about my works. It's about his grace. And yet I wonder, I just wonder that if while we say that with our mouths, what's going on at the motivational level of our hearts, this thing that's driving us is this default desire to prove I can do this. I've got this. I'm good enough. It's a story well told in the religious South. It's my story, as I'll share with you in this sermon, and it is our most fundamental problem. It's the thing that's robbing you of being truly free in Christ. And it's the problem Paul addresses in Galatians. Now, let me just tell you up front, let me give you my sermon in a sentence. Here's what Paul wants us to see in Galatians. Paul wants us to see that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Look, you bring nothing to the equation. There's nothing you bring to the equation that could possibly earn God's favor, that could possibly prove that you're good enough. It's Jesus plus his grace plus your nothing that equals everything. It equals freedom. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you add anything else to that equation... It can never save you. It will only enslave you. It will kill your soul. So I want to spend the next few minutes just unpacking that thesis for you. So why don't you look with me? Let's go to uh, Galatians chapter 5. I want you to put your eyes on the text because that's where the power's at. Um, Let's let God's word just speak to us. Look at uh, Galatians 5 verse 1. And let's just focus on this first verse for just a second. Paul says this. Hey, here's where freedom's found. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This has been called the summary command of all of Paul's teaching. This one verse. Uh, you see this all over Galatians. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, apart from Jesus, you and I have a cosmic problem that we cannot solve. 
You want to know what that problem is? We are slaves to sin. That's what Paul says. Slaves to sin. Think about the image of a slave for just a second, and I want you to let yourself kind of feel that. A slave is someone who doesn't have an identity of their own. They're just a slave. They are owned and defined by another master. They do whatever their master says. They have no other choice. And they endlessly work themselves to the bone, and it's never good enough. That's a slave. Paul says, apart from Jesus, that's the state of every human being. We are slaves to sin. This is all over Galatians. And if you want a good biblical definition of sin, I'm not sure how you define sin. I think the problem is a lot of us define sin as just bad behaviors, right? Don't cuss, drink, smoke, and chew, or date girls who do. And we think that as long as you don't do... By the way, not only did I date one of those girls, I married her. Uh, so, but we think that as long as we don't do those things, we have a good clean record and we're not necessarily sinners, right? No, man, sin is a much deeper fundamental problem in the human heart. I love Martin Luther's definition of sin. Luther said that uh, the very root of sin and the very root of every human heart is a default desire to justify and prove ourselves to God and one another. That's sin. It's this, it's this uh, endless rat race of trying to prove that I'm good enough. And Paul says, apart from Jesus, we're enslaved to that. It's a cosmic problem we can't solve. Now, here's what I love about Paul. Paul approaches Galatians the same way that I approached math in high school. Uh, every time that he, you know, I was confronted with a problem I couldn't solve, I would flip to the back of the book and get the answer. So every time Paul confronts us with this problem in Galatians, he effectively flips to the back of the book and says, let me give you the solution. Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, you want to know where freedom is found? It's found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. For freedom, Christ has set you free. What does Christ set you free for? To be free. I mean, how, how hilarious is that? We don't even reason that way. For freedom, he set you free to be free. You want to know what the answer is to your biggest problem? It's not found in do better, try harder. It's not found in let me clean up my own mess. Let me prove that I've got this. Let me prove that I can do this. It's found in Jesus. He's done all the work for you. Jesus is effectively just like my mom who tutored me in math. And by tutored, I mean she did all the work for me. He's done all the work for you. What are you, what are you still trying to make payments for? I just paid off my student loans, $24,000 I paid off. Yeah, clap for me. Thank you. Can you imagine if you got that loan paid off or when you get your mortgage paid off, how foolish would it be if you kept making payments? Would that be, would that be foolish? Paul says in Galatians 3, Oh, you foolish Galatians, why do you keep trying to add your performance to the grace of Jesus? Why are you still trying to pay for what he's already paid for? Stand firm in his freedom. Now, I think the question we have to ask 
when you're looking at verse five, uh, chapter five, verse one, is why, do, why does Paul feel the need that he has to tell us that? What is it about us that Paul has to say, hey, look, Jesus has set you free. Don't move away from that. Stand firm in that. And the reason why he has to tell us that is because that's exactly the opposite of what we tend to do. We do not stand firm in the freedom of his grace. We move away from it. What's the opposite of standing firm? It's falling or drifting, right? Look at what Paul says in uh, chapter 5, verse 4. He says, You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace. Now, Paul's not saying that you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that you can be in the grace of Jesus and have your sins covered, and then you can somehow blow it and and lose his grace. That would fly in the face of everything that I'm saying right now and everything he says and everything the whole Bible says about salvation. What Paul is saying is what Martin Luther said, the default mode of the human heart is to drift away from grace and drift into a life of performance and legalism. And so we want to add our performance onto the grace of Jesus. This is what's happening in Galatia. You have these uh, false teachers who have infiltrated the church. They've infiltrated the missional communities and the fight clubs of Galatia, and they're preaching this false gospel. And they're saying, hey, listen, Paul only gave you half the equation. It's not Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's almost right. It's actually Jesus plus you've got to be a good person. And then God will love you and he'll save you. It's actually Jesus plus you've got to keep the law of Moses. Jesus plus you've got to build a good resume. Jesus plus you've got to be a perfect church attender. Jesus plus you've got to go to Sunday school. Jesus plus you've got to, you know, avoid the really big sins. Jesus plus you've got to vote Republican. Jesus plus you've got to have this clean external image. Jesus plus this, then God will love you. That is my story. I don't know about you, but I'm a professional at that. So I grew up in a very fundamentalist religious context. And by that, I mean I grew up in Paragould. And when I was nine years old, I prayed this prayer. I had these two older Baptist pastors lead me in praying the sinner's prayer. You're probably familiar with it. And I prayed and I asked Jesus into my heart and asked Jesus to save me by his grace. And I believe something actually happened in that moment. I believe God intervened to enter my life in that moment. But then for the next 15 years, I was discipled in this system that my flesh absolutely loved, this system of performance. And I was discipled into thinking, all right, now, Adam, you've got to do this and don't do that. And God will accept you and he'll love you. He'll, you'll continue to earn his favor. It's not that I would have said I could ever earn his favor, but I, it's, like, it's as if I believed I could maintain it and I could keep myself in his good graces. And so it was, hey, as long as you uh, go to church and you read your Bible and you share your faith and you give and you pray and you do these things, God will accept you. 
And as I said a moment ago, as long as you don't do these other things, as long as you don't cuss, drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do, God will love you and God will accept you. And so I live my life thinking, okay, pray this prayer, say this formulaic prayer, this almost magic incantation where I ask Jesus into my heart 10,000 times growing up, clean up my life on the outside, go to church, obey the rules, and avoid the really big sins, and I'll go to heaven when I die. I wonder if that's how many of you are living your life. You know what Paul says? That's behavior modification. That's self-helpism. That's religion. That is not the gospel of Christianity at all. And it's slavery. It's not freedom. And in just a second, I'll show you how. Let me just address one kind of person that might be in the room for just a second. I think there might be some of you in this room, at least I hope there is, who you hear me say this and you, you think to yourself, well, dude, I, that's not me at all because I'm not trying to add anything on to the grace of Jesus because I don't care about the grace of Jesus. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I wouldn't call myself a religious person. I don't pretend to be a religious person. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. This is a safe place for you to be. It's a safe place for you to journey, to ask questions, to be yourself, to be loved on and to be challenged just like everybody else. And so if that's you, what I want to invite you to consider is that maybe even though you don't consider yourself a religious person, at the very root level, you're doing the same thing. Except it's not God's rules you try to justify yourself by keeping, it's your own rules. So you live your life by setting up your own standards and then you justify yourself by trying to keep them. Here's what it looks like. If I could just be a good enough mom, then I'd be okay. Then if I could just be a good enough employee, if I could just be successful enough, then I'll have met the standard. If I can have the right image, if I can have the American dream, if I can have the right body image, if I can can just get married, if I could just have a family, if I could just meet my standard of holiness, whatever that is for you, then I could lay my head on the pillow at night and have a sense of personal credibility, a sense of being good enough. Isn't that what we're all after? What Paul wants us to hear is that whether it's of a secular nature or whether it's of a religious nature, we are all prone to performance-based identities, self-justification strategies. And at the very root, they're both the same. Slavery. Slavery. Maybe some of you are saying, yeah, but aren't we supposed to be good? Didn't Jesus teach us to be good? Aren't we supposed to be holy? Aren't we supposed to obey? Aren't we supposed to keep the rules? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nowhere will you find this logic that grace means you can live however you want. And that's another error that some of you are slipping into. That's not legalism. That's called license. Well, because I'm safe, you know, legalism says I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's what legalism says. I do the right things, therefore God loves me. Uh, license says, I'm accepted by God, by grace, therefore I can live however I want. No, that's true. That's not true. Grace changes you in a moment and frees you to obey. So yeah, you have to obey. 
You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. That doesn't work. That works in the American dream. It doesn't work in the gospel of Jesus. But the biggest difference between religion and the gospel or between counterfeit Christianity and genuine Christianity is in why you obey. It's in your motivations for obedience. Are you obeying Jesus and doing the right things because at the end of the day, you trust that that is somehow going to earn his favor? That when you get to the pearly gates, you're going to be able to present to him a resume that says, here's all the things. I was in Sunday school this many years. Here's the prayer I prayed when I was nine. Here, I was baptized at this age. Here's my moral record. Here's the things I've done. Now let me into your kingdom. Or are you obeying him from his approval? Let me say it this way. Are you obeying him for his approval or are you obeying him from his approval? There's a subtle yet eternal difference between those two things. One will set you free. The other will absolutely enslave you. Paul says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And if you add anything else to that equation, it can never save you. It will only enslave you. And of course, the million-dollar question is, how? I don't see the shackles. Tell me, Adam, how this is slavery. Let me help you feel it. I'm going to help you understand what it feels like in my life, and I want to help you understand what it feels like in your life. First of all, look back down at the text, and let's just see that this actually is what Paul says and not just what Adam says. Look at verse 1. Look at the word again in verse 1. He says, Jesus has set you free. If you don't stand firm in that, you're going to go back again into a life of slavery. You're going to put a yoke around your neck that's going to drag you around for the rest of your life, and you're going to be a slave to your own performance. That's what Paul says. You want to know what that looks like and what that feels like? He gets super practical with us, and there's several ways that he tells us that self-justification is enslaving, they're all pretty much rooted in verse 3. I just kind of want to pull them out and let's look at them for a second. So look at verse 3. Paul says, look, <clears throat> I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the entirety of the law. Paul's saying, look, if you want to justify yourself by circumcision, which is what these uh, false teachers were saying to the Christians in the Galatian community, uh, you need to add circumcision and add the works of the law to Jesus. Paul's saying, if you want to do that, you realize you've got to keep the whole law. So here's Paul's point. Self-justification always makes you a slave to impossible standards. Impossible! Because whatever rule or standard you try to justify yourself by, whether it's religious or whether it's secular, it always makes you a slave to impossible standards because in order to be justified and accepted, you've got to keep the whole thing perfectly. Paul's saying, look, you want to justify yourself by keeping the law. The only way you can do it with integrity is you've got to keep all of it. You can't cut any corners. You can't just pick and choose the parts of it that you like. You've got to keep the whole law. Adam, you've got to be perfect. How many of you hear that voice in your head all day long? Because that's the voice I hear. You want to know what that voice is telling you? You've set up a standard and you're trying to perform to keep it. You've got to be perfect. 
You've got to keep all of it. Paul says in chapter 3 of, of Galatians, that's so oppressive, he calls it a curse. If you flip over to chapter 3, he says, what you're doing is putting the whole law, the totality of the law on your back, and you have to carry it. And the law says, do it. And you better not screw up doing it. You better do it all perfectly, or else you won't, you'll, you'll have to live in the fear of judgment. It is utterly exhausting. Let me give you a little image of what I think it looks like. Uh, when I was growing up, I, uh, every morning, this is going to help you understand a lot about me. Um, when I was getting ready for school every morning, I would watch Bozo the Clown on WGN. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, I know that's strange. Um, and nowadays with all the killer clown stuff, that's not nearly as cool. But um, I, would, I would watch Bozo and there was this popular act he would have on the variety show called a, a plate spinner. Uh, I think I have, yeah, there's an image of a plate spinner. So what this guy would do is he would balance several plates on top of these long poles. Look at those poles. He would carefully position each plate on a rod. He would spin it. And now while, while that plate's spinning, he would go to the next rod, get the next plate spinning. He'd get the next plate spinning. And, and he would get all these plates spinning. And by the time he'd get six or seven of them going, uh, the one on the far end would start wobbling dangerously. And it would be, you know, threatening to fall over and crash on the ground. He'd have to run over there and spin that one back to top speed. And by the time he would do that, another one would start to wobble dangerously and it would start to fall. He'd have to run over there and spin that one. And he would spin the whole act running frantically back and forth in this anxious frenzy, trying to keep all the, look at the plates wobbling, trying to keep all these plates spinning. Because you know what happens? If one single plate falls to the ground and crashes, his whole act is over. That's how I live my life. I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's what our life feels like. Just this, you've got to be perfect. You can't let a single plate fall. What are the plates you have spinning? For me, I've got being a dad, I've got being a husband, I've got being a neighbor, I've got being a pastor, and I've, I feel this weight of, Adam, you've got to be perfect at all these things, or God won't love you and people won't accept you. I felt it this week, I felt it this morning. Adam, if you don't, if you don't perform well in this sermon, if you don't preach a perfect, if you don't stick a perfect landing and knock it out of the park, then, then you're no good. You're not good enough. God won't accept you, people won't accept you, and you won't be able to accept and live with yourself. You know what that is? That's slavery. That's slavery. How many of you feel that in this moment? You live your life like a plate spinner. You've, you, you're a slave to impossible standards. No matter how hard you try, it's never enough. And you can't keep all the plates going. Eventually, they're going to crash. And not only does it make you a slave to impossible standards, but performance-based identities, self-justification strategies always makes you a slave to fear. Makes you a slave to fear. That's Paul's logic in verse 3, by the way. Look back at verse 3. What he's saying is, hey, if, if you think you can be good enough and you can obey all the rules so that God will accept you, then you have to consider the other side of the equation. If you fail, God will reject you. So failure equals personal rejection. How many of you feel that? If I fail, the hammer is going to drop. How many of you feel that? If I fail, God is going to smite me. 
And so failure is not an option. Because you fail, your soul gets rejected. God forbid any of my plates fall down and crash, then I'll be found out and God won't accept me. By the way, that's not only how we interact with God, that's how we interact with one another. And so for some of you, the reason why you're not willing to go deep in this community is because of the fear of rejection. The reason why you are afraid to open up and go deep with your missional community and with your fight club is precisely because you're a slave to fear. And you're afraid that your image as a perfect plate spinner will be found out once people get to know you. And then I'll be rejected. If, If they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't be able to accept me. And so you're a slave to fear. You're a slave to performing and a slave to protecting. And you live your life under constant fear of judgment and condemnation. It's a story that I know very well. It makes you a slave to fear because you can never be sure that you've done enough. Listen, if, if it's on me to perform well enough to earn God's favor, then at the end of the day, how can I ever be sure that I've done enough, that I've obeyed well enough? That's Paul's logic in verse 11. Will you scan, scan down with me and look at verse 11 of Galatians 5? Because I think this is hilarious. Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Uh, can we just acknowledge that's in the Bible? Uh, here's, here's, let me tell you what Paul's saying. Hey, if you think a small cut like circumcision is going to impress God, why don't you just cut the whole thing off? Listen, that's what he's saying. Paul had the gift of sarcasm. If you think think one tiny act of obedience is going to impress God, if you think your resume is going to do it, then why don't you just cut the whole thing off and show him how awesome you are? What he's saying is how can you ever be sure you've really done enough? You can't. And so you become a slave to that question. Have I been good enough? Have I really done enough? Is the hammer going to fall? If so, when? And you live your life a slave to that kind of fear. It not only makes you a slave to impossible standards. Self-justification makes you a slave to fear. Self-justification also makes you a slave to constant self-comparison. And you see this playing itself out in the community at Galatia. Um, I feel this one big time in my own life. Big time big time. If, if my justification and my redemption depends on me, I have no other option but to justify myself through comparison with other people. It's the only option I've got, which means not only am I always asking the question, how am I doing? But I'm a slave to the question, how are they doing? And so I'm constantly asking my question, myself the question, how am I doing? How am I, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? How am I doing? And then I'm also asking the question, how are they doing? Can I be vulnerable with you? Am I the only person in this room who, when I'm feeling down on myself and feeling bad about myself and feeling not good enough and feeling shame, I have started to feel better about myself the moment this insidious thought creeps into my mind. At least I'm better than they are. Have you ever felt that? At least I'm better than they are and then... Start to feel better about myself, right? Here's what it sounds like. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a sinner. I mean, yeah, I've never been perfect, but at least I've never killed anybody. 
I've never gone to jail. I've never stolen anything. You know what the gospel says? You stand condemned in your sin and your only hope is the grace of Jesus. And yet we play this game. We make ourselves voluntarily enslaved to constant self-comparison. It is, it is such a t- an exhausting game that we play. And when I'm, whenever, whenever I'm around people who are better than me, I feel worse about myself and I feel shame. When I'm around people whom I perceive to be better than them, I feel better about myself. And you know, so I live my life basically either on one or two poles. I either am constantly uh, looking down on other people in pride or looking down on myself in shame. And I'm just stuck in that, enslaved to that. That insidious, sick little game of self-justification. Controlled by that. So Paul says, hey, you want to prove yourself? To, you want to add your performance to the grace of Jesus? It curses you. It condemns you. It crushes you. It crushes other people. And worse, it cuts you off from Jesus, he says. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, you're severed from Jesus. Think about that for the original readers. You want to make this cut of circumcision? Do it. It cuts you off from Jesus if you do. Don't do it, Paul says. Don't don't add your performance to the grace of Jesus. It severs you from Jesus. He's saying, hey, do the math. Do the math. The only way you can add anything to Jesus is to subtract Jesus altogether. You want to add to Jesus, you literally lose everything. That's what he means in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, Jesus will be no advantage to you if you do this. Jesus won't profit you anything if you do this. In Jesus... You gain and you profit everything in his grace. But the moment you add your works to the equation, you literally lose everything. It leaves you with nothing but condemnation and slavery, which is a far cry from the abundant life of freedom that we hear about in the scriptures. So stand firm in the grace of Jesus. You want to know why I think I struggle with that? One of the main reasons why I think we struggle to stand firm in that grace and why we drift into a life of performance is because we just don't understand the beauty of the reality of God's grace and what that means for us. I think we view God's grace the same way Jared Pickney and I viewed getting pulled over in high school. Uh, Let me explain to you what I mean. So uh, as you know, Jared and I grew up together. There we are. You've seen this picture before, but it's worth seeing again. You're welcome. Uh, I'm going to try to show that picture in every sermon I preach. Jared and I not only grew up together, we used to work together. Here we are working together at the Buckle in Jonesboro. And before that, we worked together at Lakeside Metal right here in Paragould. The reason I don't have a picture of us working together at Lakeside is because after only two days, I was fired. (laughs) So... Another story. Uh, But Jared picked me up one morning for work at my parents' house for Lakeside. Some of you may have heard that Jared has a heavy foot when he's driving, and uh, he does. So we weren't even late. We weren't even late for work. He's just insane as a a driver. He was driving so fast. Now I'm the one peeing in my pants as we're driving on the way to work, and I'm telling him, dude, please slow down. We're coming up on this hill. And as we're coming up on this hill, Jared can testify to this, there's a speed limit sign that says 30 on it, OK? 
Okay, it says 30. And I say to Jared, hey, slow, slow down. The speed limit is 30. And Jared looks over at me with the same maniacal grin that Susanna looked at me with. And I kid you not, he says verbatim, 30? Yeah, right. And he slams on the accelerator. And he's, and we're heading towards this hill, and I'm holding on, and I'm about to die. And we get to the top of the hill, and there we meet a police officer. Yeah, I guess who's peeing in their pants now? Right? So this guy turns around, flips on the sirens. This guy's coming after us now. Jared pulls over. The cop pulls over. The cop walks up beside us and says, you have any idea how fast you're going? Jared says, no, sir. And then the guy, the guy goes and he runs all of Jared's information. We're both sweating. We're terrified. It's awesome to watch Jared sweat for once. And then this guy walks back up and he says to us, man, to our surprise, he says, okay, I'm going to let you boys off the hook this time but you better obey the law next time. I'm going to let you off the hook this time, but you better obey the law next time. And so we drove away going, sucker. We go to work. I think that's how we view God's grace. I'm going to let you off the hook this time, but you better obey the law next time. And if that's your understanding of God's grace, that's always going to launch you back into a life of legalism and slavery because grace is so much richer than that. Don't you understand? It's so much richer than that. Put yourself in that same scenario. Go there with me for a second. Imagine you're speeding down the road, except this time you're doing 110 in a school zone and you're blackout drunk. A cop pulls you over and you are busted. There's no hiding this. It's all over your breath. You're wearing it. You, you reek with your own sin. Police officer walks up, gives you a breathalyzer test, and you're busted, man. He handcuffs you. He carries you off to jail right where you belong. On court day, you walk up before the judge, and you know the hammer's about to fall. And the judge looks at you, and to your surprise, he does something so ludicrous, so outrageous, so extravagant. In a moment, it transforms you because the judge looks up at you. He takes off his robe, and he wraps you in it. You think, what's going on here? Wait a second. What is happening? And the judge says, you know what I'm going to do for you, Adam? You know what I'm going to do for you? I'm going to take your guilty record, and I'm going to pay the penalty for it myself. And I'm going to give you my innocent record of righteousness. And I'm going to effectively trade records with you. And I'm going to trade identities with you. You can have my innocent record. You can have my inheritance. You can have all my investments. You can have everything. Go. You're free. I'll pay for this. I'll cover this. You don't have, there's, you don't have to do anything. I'll take care of it all. You're free. All you have to do is trust me and stand firm in that freedom. Do you understand the beauty of the grace that you've been shown in Jesus? God's grace, grace is not God letting you off the hook. Grace is God putting himself on the hook for you. He paid for you. Stop making payments. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Jesus trades records with you. Put your hope in him and stand firm in that freedom. 
When Jesus saw you covered in the filth of your own mess, he didn't withdraw from you in disgust. He moved forward toward you in love. He got down in the mess with you. He cleaned you up. And when God looks at you, he didn't see you just as you are. He sees you just as Jesus is. That's grace. Stand firm in it.